Well, this week we are back in our Galatians 5 uh, topical series in, uh, on temptation, uh, which is know your God, know your friend, and we've been talking about that for the last few weeks. And as we think about that, uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating when you think about uh, some, like new atheists, a new atheist like Richard Dawkins, who claims that Christianity is much like a straitjacket, but, but even worse than that, he would say that Christianity is actually even more than that. It is... Um, tantamount to child abuse. Uh, now, you might say, why would he say something like that? Well, the reason is, he, he would say that uh, many of the world's religions and much of the problems that we have in the world can be traced back to religion. Now, if we're honest, um, our hearts tell us the same kind of thing when we are tempted to sin. We begin to believe that in some way, holiness is at enmity with our happiness, either internally or our happiness with others. And so we start to actually believe those kinds of lies in our soul. Uh, Dawkins writes it this way. He says, there's no doubt that throughout history, religion, faith has been a major motivator for war and for destruction. So religion causes problems and destructions and wars. Now, there's no doubt that many wars, like the Crusades, have erupted and death tolls escalated in the name of religion of every brand, including atheism, which acts like a religion. But Christians could fight back in this, in this case. And we could say, well, you know what? Um, what about Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, and others who were influenced by atheistic worldviews? I mean, haven't they been just as corrupt and created just as many wars and just as much damage? That's one way to argue that. But I wonder if, as I've been thinking about this this week, if there is a sense in which the Apostle Paul would agree, at least on this point, with Richard Dawkins, that mere religion and its practices actually do lead to bondage and death. In fact, Galatians seems to argue in a very similar vein. You'll remember that Paul grew up as a Hebrew of Hebrews with the Jewish version of an Ivy League education under Gamaliel. And when we are first introduced to him in Acts, we see him seeking to persecute other Christians out of a zeal for religion. So here is a very religious man, and his religion has led him to the persecution of others who do not believe in his faith. See, his religion led him to seek the death of others. But Galatians, I would argue, is about something much more than mere religion that centered on the keeping of law and statutes. In fact, Paul understood that every human inherited a sin nature from Adam, along with its own set of desires, which he calls the flesh here in this book. But Paul understands Christianity and the new covenant that is been instituted by the blood of Jesus to be centered on a new birth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is not mere religion, it is a new creation. And so something on the inside has changed in the people of God according to Paul. In Galatians 4.6 he says it this way, And because you are sons, sons and daughters, God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts crying out, Abba, Father. That is the nature of what has happened to everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the good news of the gospel is that we have new hearts that have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, creating in us a new nature. See, something on the inside has drastically and radically changed. So the new birth turns the war that we have been experiencing outwardly inward. And our very hearts 
That is where we are putting off the old man and putting on the new man as the Holy Spirit leads us to fight these desires of the flesh. And the Holy Spirit leads us to Christ-likeness. Now, so far, we've been working off of a rough version of John Owen's definition of temptation as we've been going through this series, talking about how temptation works and how we're to approach it as Christians. Uh, He says this, Temptation is anything, state, way, or condition that entices and draws the mind and heart of a person away from obedience to God and towards sin in any degree. Now, the Bible says that Satan, the world, other people, our own selves, or any mixture of these above can excite us to sin. So catch this. None of us are or will be free of temptation until Jesus returns. So when we think about temptation, this is something that all of us need to be thinking about acutely. And this morning, we will see that Christians battle the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our big idea. Christians battle the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. Before we begin, let me just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we think about this. We pray with me. Father, this morning we come before you and we just pray yet again for your help. We are a people who are desperately needy to hear from you. And Father, particularly this morning as we come to you and as we think about this topic of temptation, all of us struggle with temptation. And Father, that struggle is evidence, I believe, of your Holy Spirit at work in us. And so this morning we pray, God, that you would let your word do its work, that your Holy Spirit would come and meet with us in a special way and help us to be transformed more into the image of your Son. Would you do that, Lord? Would you do that by the power of your Spirit and through your word? We ask that in your name. It's your name we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we see here this morning is this. Freedom is a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Freedom is a battle between the flesh and the spirit. We see that in verses 16 to 18. Now, as we saw last week, uh, I think John Stott gets it right when he says that the second half of Galatians is really uh, the main point that life in Christ is liberty. Life in Christ is liberty. Freedom, if we think about it, It's actually a reality that is more dynamic than static. In other words, it's not like you just get dropped into freedom and you don't have to do anything to maintain or keep up that freedom. Not according to the Bible. Uh, The Bible actually says that we have to be constantly at work in this. So Galatians really is in large ways, uh, much like uh, Braveheart, where William Wallace screams out, freedom, right? You remember that line? It's like one of the best movies ever. One of the lines you probably don't remember is a line uh, that happens in the movie where he actually says, I'd rather be a farmer. Um, Because he actually uh, dreamed of being a farmer in all of his fights for freedom. The goal was not like to have to fight anymore. And yet as a Christian, what we know is, is that when we enter into the freedom of Christ, it is a fight. It is a battle. That is exactly what Paul tells us here. See, he didn't want to have to fight for freedom, but... We are called to fight for the freedom that we have been given. Uh, T. George also says this about Christian freedom. He says, Christian freedom can be subverted on two sides, one by legalism or on the other by antinomianism. In other words, our freedom is meant not to be a legalistic kind of freedom or a a, a non-law kind of freedom where we just kind of do whatever we want. 
that's actually called to be something much more. It's freedom of being led by the Spirit towards Christ's likeness. Now you'll remember in Galatians 5.13 that Paul told us that Christians are called to freedom, but he adds this one important clarification that we're going to be thinking about this morning, and that's this. He says, only do not use your, your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And so this morning, I believe that what Paul is doing and the verses that we're looking at is he's kind of double-clicking on not using your freedom for an opportunity of the flesh to explode it out and say, this is what I mean by that. This is what it means not to let your freedom be used in ways that I don't intend. So that's what we find in verses 16 to 18. And here's what he says about the war that is within. Look there with me. Galatians 5, 16 to 18 again. Here's what he says. He says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, he says you are no longer under the law. So notice that Paul clarifies that in every human there are these two drivers that are driving you towards the decisions that you make. Two powers or forces at play. Uh, One is the, the spirit and the other is the flesh. And they are opposed to one another. Those are influences that that are driving your thoughts and your desires and your longings. Uh, In fact, F.F. Bruce says the flesh, which he would encourage us to capitalize as almost a being itself, is the power that opposes God and enslaves human beings. Uh, Another author adds, the flesh is Paul's term for everything aside from God in which one places his final trust. So so the the flesh is kind of a, a power that is at work within you that's influencing you, but it's also the flesh has a direction that he's driving you towards, and really you'll notice that direction is anything but faith in Christ and confidence in Christ. And so that's a force that it's a work in all of us. And the Holy Spirit seals every Christian and drives that person to live for Christ's likeness. That's the problem with the law that Paul exposes. The, the law that he's been talking about throughout Galatians, he says it has no ability to transform the heart and desires of fallen humans enslaved to sin. Just think about that. If, if you are struggling with breaking the law, and I show you the law, and you still want to break the law and are going to break the law, then that law has not really helped you, has it? See, the, the Bible says that we are so broken in such a way that our wills actually desire to break the law. And we can't just tell somebody, hey, here's how to act right. Here's the user's manual, and now you'll work right. It says that we're more broken than that. We actually need an inward work of the Lord to come in and change us. All the law does is expose the glory of God and how far humanity has fallen. All it's done is diagnose the problem. It has not prescribed what it is that we need to be changed. So just as Jeremiah asked in Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The answer is no. I've never seen a leopard decide that he was going to look something other than a leopard. But if so, he says, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. The point is, you you can't change your heart to do that. And the reality is that leopards can't change their spots and Ethiopians can't change their skin color and those accustomed to evil can't do good and those of the flesh can't walk by the Spirit. So something new has to happen for man 
to live for something other than these desires of the flesh that Paul speaks of. The Spirit leads us to Christ-likeness, which is opposed to those desires of the flesh. Now, notice that these two powers coexist in the believer. The Spirit and the flesh. I don't know what you experienced or how you've experienced um, the Christian life. I'm not sure quite what you expected when you became a Christian. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I thought maybe there would be some kind of protective orb that would come around me. And that once I became a Christian, that like life would get easy then because I was like doing what God wanted. And that I no longer would have a struggle with sinful desires. Uh, that that would just get kind of better, at least like majorly better. And that I wouldn't have to fight sin. Maybe some of you had that kind of expectation as a young Christian. Some Christians imagine that the Christian life is one where you don't experience the desires of the flesh. And if you do, you think that this thing must be broken. Maybe as you're experiencing that today, you're you're thinking to yourself, maybe there are a couple things going on. A, I I must not be a Christian. Or, Or B, you haven't reached the right enlightened level of your Christian walk. That there's some place where you can get where you no longer are within the reach and the grasp of the desires of the flesh. But catch this, the great battle that each of us faces each morning when we wake up is internal. Even our thoughts and our desires are broken. We will struggle with the desires of the flesh until the day that we meet Jesus face to face. And I think that's what the phrase in verse 17 means. Notice this phrase that he uses in verse 17. He says, speaking of the flesh and the spirit, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Now, when some read that verse, some commentators say, well, the things that you want to do are the things of the spirit because you're a Christian now. Uh, You'll read some other commentators and say, well, the things that you want to do are those sinful things. And those are things that you still want to do. But I I don't think either are right. I think F.F. Bruce is right when he says that the text seems to ascribe this idea of keeping us from doing things that we want to do to both. We have these these two desires that are at war within each other. And, And it's almost as though on one level or another, we always are doing one thing and then wanting the other and then wanting thing, wanting one thing and then getting the other. And there's this battle between the two so that we are torn. Ultimate perfection in this life will never occur till Christ comes back. See, this is highlighting that internal fight, that struggle that exists in every Christian. It is a basic part of what it means to be a Christian to experience this battle and this war. Ultimate perfection and safety, it only comes when Jesus returns to deal ultimately with sin and death and the devil. That, that desire, that fight, it never goes away. I, I love a story that Lee Noble often tells uh, about a college uh, student. Uh, they, he was in a class And uh, there was a professor, he was 80 years old, and he was teaching this class on ethics, and one of the students just raised his hand and he said, "Um, Professor, I'm just curious, Uh, at what point do you stop struggling with lust? Like, at what age does that happen? And he sat there for a second, and he responded really quickly, I don't know, but I can tell you it ain't 80. (laughs) Spiritual life is experienced in the battle against the desires of the flesh that lead to sin. And the real question until that day is one of posture. What posture are you taking towards sin and sinful desire? Are are you taking God's side against sin and against temptation? Or are you taking sin's side against God? 
That's really the main question. Are you sensing the fight or not? Are you battling against sin and temptation? Only the Holy Spirit leads you to, sin, to fight against sin and, and leads you towards God. And when it comes to temptation, I think it's important to know a little bit about what's going on in our hearts. And I, uh, The Bible teaches that humanity has a couple of big problems. Our thoughts and our wants are disordered. The Bible says that our, our thoughts and our wants are disordered. It's just important to know the nature of the problem that we struggle with. See, the first that we see is, is that we, we don't think right after the fall. After Adam, we don't think right. Our minds don't work right. So Romans one twenty one talks about this. Uh, there Paul says that we became futile in our thinking, in our sin. Futile. Our, our thoughts are futile. They're not uh, thinking clearly. They're not thinking wisely. They are thinking foolishly. Uh, now, speaking of this, Abraham uh, Kuyper called this the noetic effects of sin, speaking to the way that the way that we think, we don't think the way that God created us to think properly anymore. It is broken. Our minds don't reason clearly in a world that was clearly created by God. They don't think clearly about God. They don't think about others in the way that God created us to think about others. We are broken. So we try to rationalize living in God's world without God. Of course, this is tied to that second effect of the fall that is so important for us to understand, and that's that we don't desire the right things. You know, if we don't think rightly, we won't want rightly. And so we don't want what we ought to. It's what Augustine and later Puritans called concupiscence. Isn't that a good word? This is like word day. So you can write down noetic effects of sin and concupiscence, right? And all that means, that big word, is that we in our desires and the way that we are internally, the way that we work, it is bent and it is broken in such a way that we don't want right anymore. Our desires are not good desires anymore. They are inordinate. And that's exactly what we are told by Paul in this text. We, we don't have desires that reflect a God consciousness left to ourselves. A residue or stain of original, that inherited sin, remains within us in these effects. And these effects... This residue or stain, they're experienced primarily in our thinking, which is futile, and even our very wills, tending in the direction of a love of self rather than a love of God. That's where we've been bent towards. Now, this is what is meant by a disordered will. Uh, there's a great illustration of this uh, from about 1,600 years ago, uh, written by Augustine. He wrote his confessions. Uh, they were kind of a tell-all diary of his life prior to conversion and the things that he learned about that. And he writes through those things. And he tells this story about how before he was a Christian, he and his friends used to love and to go, to go out and to steal pears from a, from a neighbor's yard. And that, of course, was a big deal. I mean, you're stealing food literally out of someone's mouth. And he would steal them, they would eat them, and, and they would talk about it, they would joke about it. But he tells this story about how after reflecting on this story one day, he realized that he was really broken about stealing these pears and about what it meant about his heart. See, after a while, they started not only stealing these pears, but he got kind of tired of the way that they tasted. And so they go and they just throw them to the pigs. And he said, well, why did I do that? I wasn't any longer even stealing the pears because I liked the taste of pears. No, what had happened, he said, was that I recognized that I was actually stealing those pears because I loved to steal. I loved the sin. I enjoyed to break God's law. It made me happy in a way. And that was the point at which he recognized 
how broken the human heart is apart from God after the fall. See, temptation is still at work even in the heart that has been converted towards Christ and that has the power of the Holy Spirit that is transforming us. Transforming us, by the way, from one degree of glory to the next, not ten degrees like we would like. And as it's doing that, we realize that we are struggling with desires, inordinate desires. And temptation is attractive because our desires are warped, left to ourselves without the help of God. See, we need more than a good conscience to fight sin. Every human has a conscience, but we need more than a conscience, a good conscience to fight sin. We actually need the Holy Spirit, God himself, to help us if we are to fight sin and temptation. We need a new heart and the internal driver, that person of the Holy Spirit, to empower us. So if you were here this morning and you were thinking to yourself, I have a sin or a temptation that is too strong for me, then you are in a good place. You are absolutely right. The only way to fight sin and temptation is through the power of the Holy Spirit. You need God himself. See, we need three things to fight the desires of the flesh. First, we need the Holy Spirit. So if you are not a a Christian, uh, maybe it's that you don't even sense that you have broken God's law or are guilty before him and don't sense temptation. If you don't sense those things, just know this. It is a grace of God to sense that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God because the day of judgment is coming. And if that's you today, I pray that you would have the Holy Spirit so that uh, grace would actually create fear in your heart until those fears are relieved in Christ alone. But for us who are believers, we know that we need the Holy Spirit. God's law will seem infuriating. More rules will make us angry and cause us to be angry towards God and others left to ourselves. Now that might look like apathy or rage when you are angry at God and others Because you can't keep the rules. Maybe you'll sound like Richard Dawkins. But either way, you know that all the law does is show you that you are under the law. That you should desire things that you don't desire. That's why Paul says in verse 18, if you'll notice, if you are led by the Spirit, he says, you are not under the law. You're not under the law anymore if you're led by the Spirit. All the law does for those led by the flesh is revealed to them that they are enslaved in their very hearts. The things they long for, they never get. And they are led more and more to pipe dreams that never pan out. Only the Holy Spirit of God can lead us out of bondage to sin into the freedom of Jesus Christ. Spiritual freedom is a gift only given to those who are utterly dependent on God. Don't miss that. Spiritual freedom is a gift that is only given to those who are utterly dependent on God. If you want to be free, you need to be bound to God. Second, we need not only the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the Bible to help us think straight. See, our wants, they need to be shaped by the the truth of who God is. That's what should shape what we long for, what we dream about, what we desire. And if we want to know how to walk according to the Spirit, we need to know what the Spirit says. And the voice of the Holy Spirit is found in the pages of Scripture which were written by men carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I believe that God can give people impressions. That God leads His people, gives them senses of things. But we are fallen and even our sense of God can be misinterpreted and we can miss Him. Even the prophets needed to compare their, their, their prophecies with the scriptures and other prophets. And I believe that God in this 
is telling us that we need to, to make sure that we are constantly tethered to the Word of God and seeking His face in His Word and listening to His voice and His voice alone. Scriptures help us know the truth so that we can walk in it. But there's a third thing that we need, and that's prayer. We need to pray for ourselves and our church and for our church to pray for us because we can't change our hearts. That's a work that we need God to do. If we're struggling with sins, it began with a temptation, and that temptation began in a heart that needs to be transformed by God. So we need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves and for others and have others pray for us. So let me ask you this this morning. As you think through your struggles with sin and temptation, are we praying like a people who are desperate to be changed? Is our prayer life marked by desperation to see God change us and change others? In the heart, not just their actions, not just the sins that we see, but the hearts that we don't see transformed more into the image of Christ so that our hearts beat with Christ's heart. I mean, how much different a people would we be if our heart were incrementally, day by day, degree by degree, being changed into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ? Are we praying like a people desperate or have we given up on God? Believing that He really can't bring the kind of freedom from sin and temptation that we desire and that we long for? Or, or have we started to subtly believe that we are tired of trying because we think that it's our trying that actually delivers us and leads us into freedom from sin and temptation. When we sin, do we ask not only for forgiveness of our sins, but for new hearts that are led by the Spirit and not by the flesh? Second, notice in verses 19 to 25 that mortification and vivification are what we are called to. These are the double-edged sword. This is the double-edged sword against temptation. Mortification and vivification. Now, as you look in verses 19 to 25, you'll notice that Paul lists out works of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit. And then in verses 19 to 20, he lists out those works of the flesh. So look what he says in verses 19 to 20. Here's what he says. He says this. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you'll remember what he said in verse 25 about those who are fighting the passions and the desires. In verse 24 that we read earlier, he said, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, we're going to come back to that. But but that speaks of a, a putting to death the works of the flesh. But in verse 24, you'll notice that the, the aorist used for, for have crucified the flesh communicates that the flesh was put to death in the past historically at the cross. But it also signals a posture change in the Christian. In other words, this isn't just something that has been done. That's true here. But we are also called in this text to fight these things that we're about to talk about in the flesh to battle against them. So Christians stand against the flesh, continuing to put to death 
the flesh until Christ returns. That's what Colossians 3.5 says. There Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. And I think these are the things that he's saying that we need to put to death if we are led by the Spirit. So notice that there is a, a list of vices that we just read, followed by a list of uh, what seem to be fruits of the Spirit or, or what might be called virtues by some. Now, a list of virtues and vices were common in the first century, and Paul seems to think that they should have been evident to Christians and non-Christians alike. These things that he lists, he says, these works of the flesh are evident. People can see them. I don't even really need to say it, but I will. Uh, in fact, uh, here, Edward Schweitzer studied lists like these of vices and virtues that he finds in the New Testament. And he, he said this after studying them. He said, the purpose of these lists is not to distinguish an outstanding group of high moral standards from the abominable immorality of the world. That's not what he's saying. So in other words, he's not saying like, look at how horrible all these people are and look how great y'all are and just make sure you continue to be great and, you know, they continue to be horrible. No, he says they were instead to show the church how much this world is living in their midst. In other words, these are areas of their own lives that they need to be at war against, battling. And so, as we look at these, we want to see that there are likely those in our congregation struggling with with some of these things. And John Stott, he actually reads these sins as broken up into four categories that we're going to look at. The first is this, uh, sexual sins, sexual temptations and sins. We need to mortify sexual immorality and purity and sensuality. Now, just to be clear, um, if you look at the history of Christianity... Uh, we have had, at times, people have had a wrong view of sex. Uh, August, Augustine was one of those guys. Uh, he got a lot of stuff really good. He got some stuff really bad. But one of the issues that he misunderstood was the nature of sex. And he believed that it actually was always sinful unless it was merely for procreation. Now, he had a, a, a sort of a, a, a bad past. And I think that sort of uh, colored the way that he viewed this. And I don't think that that's the kind of thing that I necessarily read in the Bible. I don't think that Song of Solomon is advocating that kind of view of relationships between men and women. See, God created the love between a man and a woman, and He actually stamped it as very good in the context of marriage between one woman and one man for life. It's a beautiful gift in the context of marriage. But it's sin to pursue it outside of the context that God created it for. So sexual immorality comes from the same word for pornography. These three different words, we're looking at them really quickly. It comes from the same word pornography, which speaks specifically of sexual relationships outside of the pattern which God has created. Uh, Impurity can can mean the same kind of thing. Um, Sexually, it also is broader in the sense of just being impure generally. And then sensuality, it might seem like a word that is sort of more vague, but it actually speaks of more of a, a rampant kind of headlong pursuit of sexuality without any kind of hindrances. Well, don't miss this. Here's something I think that's important to remember when we think about sex according to the Bible. God cares about your sex life. He cares about you. He cares about every area, aspect of your life. You know, in the Greco and Roman culture, sexual sin wasn't especially bad as long as you didn't plunge yourself into it. But when it comes to temptation... And God, it's important to remember that sin begins with a heart posture towards God and others. If we begin with a a sexual appetite, some kind of desire that we have, 
that is likely broken, that is likely affected by the fall. And then we try to work from that appetite back up to God and tell God what he ought to do. And begin to create a God that looks different from the God of the Bible who is sovereign over us in every aspect. Then we have an idol. We have a different God than the God who created us. We have a created God. See, we don't have time to tarry here for long. But I believe it's important just to take note of pornography and the devastating effects that it has on our culture. Uh, There was just a Barna study in 2016 that found that there's something that is shifting in the way that the generation after, after the baby boomers is viewing uh, life and ethics and sexuality. Uh, in fact, they just did a, a study in 2016 where they found that teens and young adults actually believe that not recycling is more immoral than, having, uh, than viewing porn. In other words, like recycling and viewing porn, like recycling, like that's really the moral thing that we need to be looking out for. And only a third of them think that viewing pornography is actually sin. The Apostle Paul would say that pornography is actually enslaving a generation of people that we love. It's searing their consciences. It's warping their sense of the image of God. It's feeding the flesh, not the spirit. And it's ruining lives. See, porn never created a gentleman. Ladies, the men that you want, they are not going to be created by porn. Gentlemen uh, are only created by the Holy Spirit because gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if they are not led by the Holy Spirit, then you are not going to find a man who is gentle and kind and gracious and protective and loving of you. You'll find a man that has been feeding the flesh and that is not safe for you. And men, it's the same way with you. Like you need to fight this like you're fighting for your life and your soul because those who practice such things don't inherit the kingdom of God. If you're struggling with that this morning, I just want you to know that you are in a safe place. This is a place where we want our brothers and sisters and those who are even outside of the covenant who are looking for life and help to come. And so if you're struggling with that, let us bring it into the light with you. Find another brother to talk to for accountability or another sister if you're a woman who's struggling with these things. Uh, You can talk to Jim Hughes with our Hope for Addictions. He would love to help point you to resources, find somebody, if not himself, to care for you. Uh, You can uh, turn in your smartphone for a dumb phone. That might be the smartest thing you've ever done. You can get covenant eyes for your computer. Uh, do it all. Like, just go napalm on this stuff. You, you just need to fight it. It is your soul that is at stake. We need to save the generation that is to come, and it can only be through the leading of the Holy Spirit. But there's a second thing that we find that, that Paul speaks up here. He says, mortify mere religion. Mortify mere religion. Notice he speaks of idolatry and sorcery. Now, idolatry is worshiping something other than God, and sorcery is tampering with evil powers. So, all idolatry is demonic. The flesh draws, seeks to drag our worship away from God to almost anything else. Now, I think that Keller, when he looks at these verses, may be reading Augustine into Paul's use of the word desire here. Uh, the word desire, it, it's a word that that kind of would translate with the parts into over-desire, but I don't know if, if that's necessarily what's trying to be communicated. But I think the point is dead on anyway. See, that word for desire that he speaks of, the desires of the flesh that he begins with in verse 16, really is an inordinate kind of desire. And here's why I think that might be important. 
It's to say that desires for good things aren't bad. They're good. It's good to have good desires. God created us with those things. God wants us to take joy in Him, to enjoy Him and the things that He made. He wants you to be a people of joy. See, they only become evil, these good things and these good desires, when one overly desires some good thing to the degree that it controls them and becomes like a god to them. So some good thing in your life, really good, gets super confusing when that thing becomes a god and controls you. See, it speaks of something that you can't be happy without. You've probably heard it said that good gifts make bad gods. They make horrible gods. And our hearts can turn husbands, wives, children, friends, houses, cars, hobbies, jobs, sexual appetites, and even ministries into gods. Now, what could you this morning not be happy living without if all you had was Jesus Christ? What controls you? Is the flesh tempting you to deify your good desires this morning? Third, notice he gives a category of mortifying community killers. Did you see that? Mortify community killers. They are quarrels, a contentious temper, someone who is just given to fighting, envy, Somebody who is jealous of, or, 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 or wants something that someone else has. Fits of rage. where You just explode at people. Selfish ambition. You know, wanting what's best for you without regard for others. Dissensions. Where you are fighting with others. Party intrigues. Creating factions around uh, opinions or, or different preferences. And jealousies. Maybe not even not just wanting somebody to have what you want, but wanting them not to have it. See, the gospel creates a humility in the people of God that brings about the fruit of unity and peace, not these things. And the gospel is self-sacrificial and it's working. Just as Christ laid down His life for us, we lay down our lives for one another. But notice here that the flesh is self-centered and leads to fights. So much of this centers on the the heart posture and attitude. Did you notice that? There's a, a temptation to form cliques and factions around preferences. And towards wanting what others have and not wanting others to have what they have received. You know, I love uh, a friend of mine uh, who I used to regularly ask him, how are you doing? And he would say, better than I deserve. And, and he would say that and he had a lot of good days. And I thought, well, yeah, of course you're doing better than you deserve. Um, and then he had a time in life where he got cancer. And one of his children was going through a divorce. And all of his friends kind of turned on him, including his church, and he had this really sort of dark sort of day. And I went to him and said, hey, man, how are you doing? Like, very sincerely, just wondering how he was. And he just came back with, better than I deserve. Still better than I deserve. See, he knew that he was a sinner saved by grace and everything else is gravy if you have Jesus. Not only that, he knows that Jesus reigns and works all things together for, for our good and for his glory. And don't miss this. Where Jesus reigns in the individual hearts of God's people peace will break out more and more. But it will always be a fight that begins with fighting temptation in our own hearts to jockey for Christ's throne. But catch this, if someone has sinned against you, let me just encourage you, uh, go to that person and be reconciled like Jesus says in Matthew 18. Right? If we want the peace that God promises, He also says that we need to fight for it. And part of that fight for the community is going to brothers or sisters that have 
have offended us. You know, stewing in your anger, it's not going to produce the righteousness of God and it can lead to division in the body. And Jesus wants better for his people. Now, maybe Facebook or Pinterest have tweaked your heart and tempted you to hate someone for living the life that you want. And maybe you need to take break from social media just to protect your heart from not loving others. But we need to be on guard, watching what it is that is actually feeding our hearts and drawing us away from God. But fourth, we need to mortify drunkenness and orgies. Now, this may be one thing, but I think these two things might be the same thing, the idea of getting drunk and indulging in sin. See, Jesus came to give his flesh and blood to us, reminding us of a greater feast and party that is to come, accompanied by joys this world can't compete with. So that desire to to get drunk and to indulge in sin, the thought that there's some kind of joy that that is in that, that can by any means compete with the kingdom that is to come that we have been promised is a lie and a fiction from hell. Uh, what I think the reason that we find in this text, in verse 24, that we are to, to persecute and to kill and put to death the desires of the flesh, is because he wants us to know in verse 22 that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, many of these Christians would have struggled with major FOMO. You know what I'm talking about? Like fear of missing out. Like fear of missing out on the party, fear of missing out on the family get-togethers, fear of missing out on all of the acceptance and all of the joy, that there's some kind of joy that's being offered to the world that they don't get to be a part of. Their fear of missing out on feeding the appetites of this life and the community of this world. But Paul turns it on its head here, I believe. And he says, you need to reset your FOMO. You need to reset your FOMO from tomorrow's party to the eternal kingdom of God and the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's the thing you need to be scared of missing out on. There is no joy like that joy. And you are day by day sacrificing it for petty, insignificant, momentary things when God has something eternal and vast and meaningful that is offered to you. See, that's the party that you want to miss out on. Catch this. It's not only putting to death sin, it's living unto God. It's vivifying, bearing fruit of the Spirit. Notice what he says in verses 22 to 26. He says this. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now you'll notice Paul here points to the fruitful results of the one who is in Christ. There is no law. There's no law against these. You're free to to walk about the cabin in these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. All of this begins with that love of God that visits and reshapes the hearts and lives of his people. In fact, F.F. Bruce writing here says this. He says, this is God's own love spoken of here as manifested in Christ, which floods their lives and springs up in a responsive love to God and Christ and to one another and overflows into all of mankind. See, that whole list begins with the love of God being shed abroad on the hearts of those who are in Christ. And that's when we experience the the joy 
that is a gift of the Spirit, but also a command of the Lord. It's when we experience that peace, that, that holistic being right with God and others. Where we experience patience, which is that ability to endure hard things and remain faithful. It is the way in which we begin to experience the kindness, the kindness of the Lord and the kindness towards others and the goodness of God that blesses us, the blessings of the new covenant and the faithfulness, the faithfulness that we show to sticking with God and others and His people and the gentleness that we show towards others and the self-control. All of these things are actually coming and flowing from the love of God that has been shown to us and it has swept us up in a sense that we begin to look like God. God is a God who loves. God is the God of infinite joy. God is the God who is a God who is of peace. There is no division in God. He is perfectly at peace at all times and He's bringing about peace to His people and we become missionaries and ambassadors of the peace of God. He is the one who has been patient with us in our sin. And those sins that we are fighting even today. He is the one who is patiently working with us, disciplining us as children that He loves to give us life, not death. He is the God who is good to us. Every good gift comes to us from Him. There is no good but from God. He is faithful. He has to remind His people again and again who are faithless before Him that He is faithful and He will never give up on His covenants. He is the God who is gentle with us. He's not harsh casting us off as we deserve. He is gentle. He is self-controlled. He doesn't lose his temper. He does not act in rage. He is always acting with infinite wisdom and purpose in the decisions that he has. And we begin to look like God. And God says, there is no law against looking like me. In other words, we are called to here look like our God. And he says, verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus. Notice how it's, it's butted up right next to these fruits of the Spirit. Not the works of the flesh, but the fruits of the Spirit. He butts it up to this verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, this whole work of us looking like God and us having these fruits of the Spirit that are springing up into life, not death, it is not because of you ultimately. It's because of what Christ has done at the cross. Do you notice that? It's those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. That's an heiress that points to the past, a past event that happened. And he says, this is something that happened at the cross. That's the reason that you are alive today. So if we're looking for the confidence that we have to walk in these things, it is not pull up yourself by your bootstraps and you can do better today. It is don't forget what Christ did at the cross. He defeated the powers of sin, death, and the devil so that you can walk in life. There's hope. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling elsewhere in Scripture, but here Paul grounds our victory over the flesh at the work of Christ on the cross. And it's not just that a believer can have victory over temptation and sin. We've already won in Christ at the cross where he disarmed temptation and sin. Now, I want to close with two quick things. Two quick things. First, we need to be reminded as we think about killing sin and temptation that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. You know, after reminding us that we belong to Christ, I love what Tim Keller says in his commentary here. He says, all that is His, being Christ, is ours. Our, uh, our approval and welcome from the Father 
rests not on our character or actions, but on His. And we are free to acknowledge where we have given up ground to the the flesh in our lives. We're free to confess where we have not sought to keep in step with the Spirit. We are free to realize that we have confused our gifts or our natural character with the fruit of the Spirit and not given Him the credit that He is due. See, if we really believe what the Bible says about Jesus, we can be vulnerable and transparent about sin and avoid, avoid two extremes. On one side, saying, well, we're, we're all sinners, and who am I to judge? But we want to avoid that. Yeah, we are sinners, and it's only by grace that we are saved. But God does not want to leave us in that sin. He wants to transform us from one degree of glory into the next, into His Son. And, and we don't want to come into the other equally dangerous extreme where you know, we're Christians and Christians don't do that stuff. And, and if you do, you have to hide it really good because then people will know that you're a sinner and we can't hang out with you anymore. See, neither of those postures leads to transformation and change. And the Bible is all about the fact that we need to be transformed into the image of Christ day by day. We need to be a place where people feel that they can humbly seek Christ's likeness with the firm conviction that our hope is located in our union with Christ not ourselves. And second, those in Christ need to keep in step with the Spirit. Pursuing holiness and fighting temptation to sin against God will not happen if you just let go and let God. It's not a default setting that you're going to just like sort of ease into holiness. It's a battle. As Kevin DeYoung says, it requires Spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. And as we find areas of our lives that are out of step, we need to seek Christ and His help by the power of the Holy Spirit to change. So to use the language of idolatry, we need to chase down the idols of our lives and hearts and replace them with the living Christ, placing our confidence fully in Him. Is that what you're doing? Is that what we're doing? Let's pray and ask God that He would help us. Let's go to the Lord and pray.